Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Will the U.S. government be shut down? Well, President Donald Trump says he's threatening to shut down the government over the border wall funding. Here to explain more is Steve Bell. He is senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He's a former Senate Budget Committee staff director for Republican Pete Domenici, and that was in 1974 to 1986. Steve Bell, boy, that seems like ancient times, doesn't it? Well, it really does. Uh, things were... Nothing is golden except in our memories, but uh, those were much easier years than now. Explain how the contrast has informed your understanding of what President Trump said in Phoenix about shutting down the government and connecting that to funding for a potential border wall. Well, he said it several times now, and so I'm beginning to think that he means it quite seriously. Uh, Let me just distinguish between two things. Shutting down the government would mean that we just didn't pass the 12 spending bills or appropriation bills for the upcoming fiscal year by October 1st. That is much different than defaulting on the debt. And I just want to make sure everyone understands there are two different things. Um, I think the president will, if he doesn't get a bill that has funding directly for the wall, I think he will not sign it. And I think that we will have uh, on the 29th, um, of September, I think we will have the beginning of what I believe will be a relatively short government shutdown. So, Steve, uh, can you talk about the distinction that you just mentioned? Because when I look at bond markets, they certainly are not expecting any kind of default, and they're not, frankly, expecting even a close call. I mean, I'm just looking at, for example, uh, three-month and six-month Treasury bills, and they're not showing any distortions like we've seen in the past. So is there? Show us, explain to us how we could see a government shutdown but not a default. And tell us why you think this would play well with President Trump's base. Well, Lisa, I think uh, I think you saw in Phoenix a couple of nights ago uh, what the president's doing with the base. And if he had to shut down spending and shut down the government and the, the swamp with all the bureaucracy, because they wouldn't give him a border wall, I think that plays very well with his base. And I think it's something they'll remember. He can blame it on the Congress, and um, I think he, that gets him a pretty much a free ride on that. But a different question is what happens if we have any kind of default in the debt, which I do not believe we will have. We will pass a debt extension. It may not be for a couple of years. It may only be for 90 days, but we will pass a debt extension in time. We will not pass, in my view, any of the 12 appropriation bills on time, and it will be something we call a big omnibus spending bill that will be sent to the president. If it doesn't have wall funding, I think it will fail, and he will shut down the government. Steve, do you believe that there are going to be any movement, any uh, activity on tax reform? I think it's going to be very, very difficult. I wrote something uh, about this uh, yesterday. Um, The challenges ahead are really very difficult because you need bipartisan support to get a tax bill out. And that means you're going to have to move towards whatever 
Democrats want in their tax bill? Will that be higher rates on the top 5%? Will that be an expansion of the earned income tax credit? No one really knows what they will demand. But it's pretty clear to most of us now that a Republican-only tax plan cannot pass the Senate under current circumstances. And that's going to be, I think, a big-time fight. I consider that to be something that might happen uh, in the first quarter of 2018. But people should understand that the legislative process in the Senate on taxes is very complex. Uh, Steve, you're talking about the likelihood of a government shutdown and the likely unwillingness of uh, Republican senators and uh, House representatives to pass a bill that does have some kind of provision for the wall funding. I'm wondering, what would a government shutdown do for the relationship between uh, GOP senators and congressmen uh, with President Trump, especially as the uh, evident battle between Mitch McConnell and President Trump heats up? Well, I think it would have more of an impact on the relationship, which is already quite poor, uh, between the Senate Republican caucus and the president. Um, I think that this will have some impact, but not a lot, on such things as the tax reform possibility, uh, some sort of initiative on infrastructure, those kinds of things. But they're going to be delayed anyway. What, I, what bothers me more is if what I'm saying comes true, we have a government shutdown, the president blames the Congress and says it's all over the wall, you know, that kind of stuff, that it will probably endanger him getting anything done that he wants to get done uh, as far as sort of a big infrastructure initiative, uh, spending more for defense, which I think already is a steep hill to climb. Uh, all in all, there are three people you ought not to make mad in this town. Um, that's the intelligence community, and he's done that. And it's the FBI, and he's done that. And the third one is Mitch McConnell, because... Uh, only Mr. McConnell's desire to have a tax bill to help his senators get reelected next year, only that one fact really helps the possibility of a tax bill passing. Steve, I just want to break in and just give you everyone this uh, headline from Bloomberg that the smartphone maker HTC is said to explore strategic options. We'll get more details and pass them along. Steve, I want you to just continue because I'm sure you've got ongoing relationships, friendships uh, in D.C. with lawmakers and staffers. Uh, what have you heard in their reaction to some of the president's comments about uh, the border wall and in general about his relationship uh, with the, uh, the Republican leadership? Well, his relationship with the Republican leadership is quite strained. You just don't take on uh, a Jeff Flake, Senator Flake, uh, and encourage a person to run against him in the primary and have a group associated with you raising money against him and make friends with the Republican Senate caucus. And you don't do it with, with uh, Mr. Heller in Nevada. So he's got about seven or eight people that he's directly made mad, the president has. And in private, staff simply doesn't know how much real effort the president will put into a tax plan or into uh, funding the wall? Will it be sort of like it was in health care, where ever so often he would talk about, well, we need to get the health care bill finished? Um, if we're going to get a health, if we're going to get a tax reform bill passed by the first quarter of this coming year, then the president's going to have to devote all of his energy and all of his uh, remarks 
towards that goal. Otherwise, there just will not be the momentum. In 86, when we passed the tax bill, remember, we had Reagan 100% behind it. We had Congress that had been negotiating behind the scenes for a couple of years, 100% behind it, and it was still tough to do. Steve Bell, thank you so much for joining us and for your insights into this. Steve Bell is Senior Advisor for the Bipartisan Policy Center, also a former Senate Budget Committee Staff Director for Republican Pete Dominici uh, from 1974 to 1986. There are a couple of new employment laws that are set to take effect in New York City later this year. And uh, I'm very interested to learn more about them because somehow they totally flew under my radar. And I'm sure that they have a lot of other people as well. Rania Sedholm joins us now. She's a managing partner at Sedholm Law Group, which is based in New York and has been tracking these changes, which potentially could have uh, some significant effects in particular businesses. So, Rania, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Can you just first lay out what the main rules are, employment rules that you're tracking and what the potential consequences in your view will be? Sure. So effective on Halloween, October 31st, interesting day to choose, employers will no longer be able to ask about salary history. And the theory behind this is that by not asking about salary history, women and minorities in particular will fare better. Now, as a woman who is a minority, I want us to all fare better, but I just don't see how this is going to to help us. Um, wait, wait, just before we go on. Yeah. So in other words, can you just uh, elaborate? Why do you think that... that- it won't necessarily help the situation. Well, I think it's we need to change people's thinking and <clears throat> help them understand how beneficial it is to have women in the workplace and minorities in the workplace. And by simply not asking someone, excuse me, how much are you currently making? It doesn't help them at all. I mean, for example, if you have no intention of hiring a female minority person and uh, you're interviewing them in your head, you're saying, okay, this job, I'm going to be able to spend between eighty dollars and $120,000 on a salary. In walks uh, a female and in walks a white male. And you decide that you're going to only pay females and minorities the 80000 never having asked a question about their previous salary history at all. And in your mind, you're going to offer this white male 120000 Well, can you just give us a sense of what the other side of that is? I mean, why was it implemented? What was the thinking? Uh, was it just simply that uh, because there would be a sort of range so that if somebody walked in and had been paid less than their prior job, yes. which studies have shown that sometimes uh, women and minorities have been paid uh, less, that if they come in, if you have a range, then you have to stick with that range. That's exactly it. It's because when you are asked, what are you currently making, if you are a female or a minority, you're likely making less. So even if you obtain a substantial raise, it's still substantially less than you would otherwise earn if you're a white male in the same position. But again, it's all about the mindset. Why not just not have such a large band? How about a band of 110 to 120 in your head? I mean, I just hired somebody and my band was about $5,000. Well, I think also you just want to hire the best person. Well, of course you do. Of course you do. And I think the real message is that females and minorities are just as great as others. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you don't segregate people when they come in the door. You know, you go in one interview room and another interview room. Of course not. But I think that those individuals who are holding back, you know, minorities and females 
aren't going to be hindered simply right. because they can't ask one question. Instead of doing uh, imposing a ban on a question, help people think better. Well, hold on a second. There are a couple of other rules that are going into effect as well. Uh, one affects fast food workers, basically saying uh, that they need more advance notice about their schedules and things can't just be shifted on them at the last minute. Uh, and then a similar type of thing within retail. And there, you had a similar uh, complaint. In theory, I get, you know, you get it, but yeah. it won't actually have the practical effect that was intended. Can I just give, ask for a little bit of history into why these rules are getting implemented now? Who is behind them? And uh, who is the big lobby behind them, I guess, is my other question. Well, I, I think, you know, union groups probably, if I had to to guess, I would say, you know, 32BJ is, is partially part of this. I think there's um, a lot of progressive cooperatives, for back of a, lack of a better term, that are behind it. I think the reason behind these laws are, are they're good. They're well-intentioned. I just don't know if the lawmakers had enough foresight to understand how this is practically impacting companies. So if you are working in retail uh, as a salesperson, not in the executive office, or you're working in a fast food chain, in the same vein, you know, at the store, at the restaurant, at the franchise, you're likely a low income wage earner. And right now you have no way of knowing how much you're going to make in a particular week. You could have 40 hour shift. You could have a 20 hour shift. And of course, it's difficult to make ends meet. Uh, when you're living like that, paycheck to paycheck, and not even knowing how steady it will be. So that's the reason. The reason is we want to help these, you know, workers at least know how much they're going to earn. Because you can't, you know, force them to get paid a certain amount, except with minimum wage, of course. But no one is telling you you have to employ them for 50 hours a week. The law says, if you're in fast food, you have to give someone their schedule 14 days in advance. And if you don't, you have to pay a premium. I have to wonder, I wonder if uh, certain retailers and fast food restaurants will uh, cut back on uh, some well, of their employment. That, that may be their response. You know, you know, Ronnie, I just want to get your, the last point here, which is the Fair Work Week Act. Yes. This is about on-call scheduling. What is right. that? On-call scheduling is when you, uh, it's in the retail space, you call in and you say, hi, you know, I'm, I'm calling in to see if there's a job for me today. Uh, that's on-call scheduling. You have to make yourself available. I think it's a term that came from the union labor field where they used to say you have to be ready, willing, and able, and you used to do something called shaping. Yeah. It was the same thing. And this I, is this is going to be banned, that. correct? This is the, the this is going to yes, be banned. No, no more. I ha I need to give you the schedule seventy-two hours in advance if you're a retail employee. Thank you very much for being here and enlightening us. Well done. Rainia uh, Sethome, managing partner of Sethome Law Group, talking about uh, three new uh, laws that are going to be put into effect that may really change the way employers and employees uh, deal with each other. Thank you very much. a lot about uh, big retailers trying to compete with the albatross of Amazon, but Costco is perhaps not playing the same game. Here to explain uh, its approach and some of the controversy over it is Matt Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg News, who joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Matt, can you give us a little bit of a sense of why Costco is 
opting out of this race to online sales and and what that has meant for its uh, performance? Well, it really gets down to their business model. I mean, this is a company we've all, I'm sure we've all shopped there. You know, you walk in, it's a treasure hunt experience. You've got your, you know, your big tubs of mayo and your paper towels on the outside and you grab those. But then it's all about the stuff you find in the middle of the store. You know, you could find a margarita maker. You could find a kayak. I mean, there's stuff, they change this stuff out all the time. And a lot of it is tailor-made. It's only available at Costco. So they know that people are going to be keep going in there for those treasure hunt items, as well as the bulk purchases of, you know, the really big tubs of mayo and the, you know, 40 packs of Gillette razors. But that is a business model that is not very conducive to selling online, particularly the treasure hunt model where your things are changing constantly like that. And so for those reasons, Costco has felt that, well, our store Real estate is so valuable. We have so many more areas that we might be able to conquer. For example, they just opened in France. They just opened in Iceland. They've decided to, to, and I think wisely thus far, to spend a lot of their capital expenditure on just expanding geographically in the U.S., in North America, and also internationally, rather than going you know, hog wild on the web like other retailers have done. So is this going to benefit them? I mean, you know, we're raising the issue because everyone seems to be running scared from anything that Amazon touches. Yeah, you got to remember, Pim, I mean, selling online is very, it's very hard to be profitable. Walmart is doing a lot online, but they're not making a heck of a lot of money online. You know, they're making a lot of noise. They're, they're buying jet and they're doing, you know, easy reorder. And they have that up. agreement with uh, Google that exactly. they just announced the big this news week. with Google this week. So they're now selling on, on Google's online shopping mall. But it's still extremely hard to make money on these sales. You make a lot more money, a lot more profits in your store. And Costco knows this. Well, but I think that a lot of the retailers, to be fair, the Walmarts and the Targets of the world, aren't doing this for short-term profits. When I say this, I mean... uh, Yeah, they're doing it for long-term survival. Right, for long-term survival. They're they're beefing up their online presences so that they can be a viable competitor to whatever Amazon uh, morphs into. And it's sort of the question mark around Costco model. Perhaps it's working now. Perhaps it makes sense right now. But what happens when the consumer all of a sudden gets used to being able to order something and just go to the store and pick it up and not spend two hours hunting for treasure? That's the question we asked. And that's why we thought it was timely to do this story right now, because it's a fair question. Analysts are starting to ask it, especially in the wake of the Amazon Whole Foods deal, where you now have Amazon going heavily into grocery. And surveys have been done. The reason people go to Costco more than anything else, I know I talked about kayaks and margarita machines, but people go to Costco for grocery. I mean, they go there to buy big cuts of meat. They go there to buy produce that's fresh and very good. They go there to buy wine and cheese and all that, all those great items. And now with Amazon buying Whole Foods, people now have a reason, oh, wait a minute, do I need to go to Costco as often? Maybe not. And this is where an online offering would really help. But thus far, Costco has really just kind of done the basics online. Well, I was looking at the basics online and things like you can buy a shed from Costco <laughs> for 1500 bucks, but then you can also buy, uh, you know, a uh, Lenovo uh, laptop for about 1000 bucks and then get a $200 rebate. Yeah. So, I mean, their prices seem to be pretty comparable to what other purveyors are. Yeah, the issue are with Costco is not their not prices. Cost, their right. prices are amazing. You know, that's why they, they are so successful. And they got their private label brand, Kirkland. Yes, Kirkland is a bona fide brand. I wouldn't even call it a private label. It is a bona fide brand and you could find it in other stores. Correct. People think Kirkland is, you know, a, a real brand like a Nike or a, a Tiffany or something like that. So the issue is more about what they need to do in the long term. Do they need to be spending a little bit more? Do they need to be adding, let's say, a uh, online order pickup desk? 
And I asked the CFO of Costco this, he said, and he's answered this question many times. He says, look, our space in the store is so valuable. Whatever we put there is going to sell so quickly. I'd rather not sit somebody behind a desk and just deliver online orders because somebody coming in might just grab whatever they ordered online and then walk out. Costco doesn't want you walking out. They want you wandering around eating food samples, stuff like that. So far, does it seem like their sales are accelerating or are they starting to see some... Uh, no, their weakening? sales are doing very well. The issue that we've noted and we saw in the story is their online sales growth of about 11 12%. It's well beyond Walmart, well beyond Target. It's even lower than the broader e-commerce market, which is growing 15%. And if you can't grow faster than the broader market, you know, you might need to catch up a little bit. But their in-store sales, what they call the same-store sales, which is the key metric in retail... They're, do they're doing gangbusters there, you know, 5%, 6%. Those are numbers that any other retailer would kill for right now in the midst of this retail apocalypse. Well, I was just looking at a comparison. Amazon sales, what are we talking about? About $150 billion, uh, a year. Right now, uh, the run rate for Costco is about $123 billion. So... You know, there's there's some comparable yeah. uh, uh, business execution. Yeah, they you know they they do need to do a little bit more online. I think they acknowledge this. I think we'll see more from Costco in the months ahead online. But you know, culturally, it's just something that they're a bit resistant to. Well, shares of Costco, um, excuse me, <clears throat> shares of Costco down twenty nine cents, one hundred and fifty nine dollars. Stock is up uh, three and a quarter percent so far this year. Thanks very much for being with us. Always a pleasure, Matt Boyle. I want to bring in Stephen Englander, head of research and strategy at Rafiki Capital Management. Uh, he was formerly uh, the head of G10FX strategy at Citigroup. And uh, Stephen joins us now. Uh, Stephen, what do you make of this ongoing trade, especially uh, the idea that a lot of hedge funds are doubling down that the U.S. dollar will continue to weaken? Um, good morning, Lisa and uh, Tim. Um... Look, you know, I, I think that a lot of things are changing here. In particular, um, what's different, setting aside the, the, you know, Trump election victory, um, which has mostly faded from the market, I, I think the, the big surprise is how persistent disinflationary shocks are at this stage of the business cycle. And the, the market is really debating um, how much necessity there is of the Fed to keep raising rates and how successful they're going to be at hitting their 2% inflation target. I think by contrast, the, the surprise in Europe is just how well the European economy, how fast the unemployment rate is dropping, um, how quickly things are improving there. And a lot of European officials, not necessarily Mario Draghi, but others on the governing council, you know, the, the Bundesbank representative, for example, are looking at this and saying, why do we still have um, monetary policy settings at emergency measures? And it's this big long-term question mark about U.S. inflation and the beginning of this shift in ECB, I think that's moving markets more than the Trump trade. Well, you know, Steve, I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about what uh, what value, you know, comes from, let's say, these confabs like the, the Jackson Hole, Wyoming meeting and so on. I mean, it, it seems as though many investors, they're looking at the details of their investments. They're not necessarily they're done with this big macro trade because we know what the, the future is. They're going to unwind the, the balance sheet. And then we wait for Mario Draghi to figure out when they're going to stop buying bonds. 
Well, I, I think that they're waiting for uh, to see if there's any big surprise. Quite often, what um, the market reaction that you see after these events, you know, and it can be even an FOMC meeting or FOMC minutes, is not whether or not they've surprised, but that investors have been holding back from putting on a position or taking off a position because they um, really. They want to I mean, and, but Stephen, yeah. really, you you know, investors who will wait based on what they hear from a central bank? No, no. but the, if you think that the, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty over the next three days, uh, you may ask yourself, why make an investment today when I can do it on Monday when this is all passed? And you know, if, if everything goes according to plan, it's perfectly fine. But if they throw a wrench into the system, you know, I, I will have my powder dry to react accordingly. And many investors behave that way. Stephen, I, I wanted to uh, touch on, on what you were uh, talking about, which is that there have been disinflationary surprises in the U.S., or the economic data hasn't been as good as many people uh, have been expecting, whereas in Europe, there have been a number of positive surprises. Uh, at this point, given where earnings have been in the past season, which have actually been uh, pretty good, do you think that the bulk of the disinflationary surprises uh, are behind us in the U.S.? Um, not necessarily. You know, one that's a, it's a very difficult question because you, you, these are very difficult trends to unravel. But I think what we're seeing is that the disinflationary surprises are not caused by um, the types of demand shocks like we have when we have a recession and the output falls, on, uh, unemployment rises. Um, they're being caused by technological innovation. And the idea that that innovation or the impact of that innovation would be concentrated in a three or four month period and then stop, I think is unlikely. So I think it's quite possible that we're going to continue to see these shocks uh, related to innovation, largely related to our ability to use capital more efficiently. And um, it's going to be a battle. The labor market is tighter than it used to be. But on the other hand, I think that these shocks are, are going to be with us for some time. All right. So what, what kinds of shocks are you talking about? What would be an example? Well, for example, the, if, if you think of you know, the uh, ride sharing, if you think of apartment sharing, um, tremendous economies of scale in, in all of these ventures, the ability to use capital uh, efficiently. And that puts downward pressure on, you know, these traditional sources, you know, to hotels, whether taxis and so on. And we're seeing this in many areas. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thanks very much, uh, Stephen Englander. He is the head of research and strategy at Rafiki Capital Management uh, based uh, in New York. Uh, they are a cross-asset hedge fund. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.